What's important to you is going to make it across to the people who have to endure your sermons over and over and over again. What you emphasize will be what is picked up by those who listen week in and week out. Tony Carter says that the culture of any church is shaped by the preponderance of messages emanating from its preachers. The culture of any church is shaped by the preponderance of messages. Guys, I looked up the word preponderance. Guess what preponderance means? It means the majority, not just an occasional message. It doesn't cut it to say Jesus loves you in January, March, September, and on Christmas. That doesn't cut it. It's the preponderance of messages. It's the steady stream that comes in and out. That is what's going to actually shape a culture. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 245. My name is Mike Neglia, and I just want to say I wholeheartedly agree with that opening clip. Uh, The reason why is that's me. So for this week's episode, it is a recording that was recorded back on June 29th, 2022 at the CGN Calvary Chapel International Conference in Costa Mesa, California. I got to lead a workshop entitled Preaching That Creates Gospel Culture. And what you're about to hear is me talking for about 20, 21 minutes. And then afterwards, I'm joined by two of my friends and colleagues, uh, Nick Cady and Tim Chaddick. And then the three of us have, I think, quite an interesting conversation about the strengths and the potential limitations of the pulpit and ways that we can make the most of our Sunday sermons that create and uphold gospel culture in our churches. And then following our discussion, we have some interactive Q&A time. And here's the thing. After a few questions, the audio just cuts out. (laughs) I don't know what went wrong, but I've decided to leave part of the Q&A panel for you because there's some great questions, there's some great content. And you know what? If you want more, well, too bad. You had to be there. And I also think this is kind of a good advertisement for the next Calvary Chapel CGN International Conference, which is coming up in June of 2023. You want to be there in the room. All right. Well, speaking of in the room, do want to give a shout out to everybody who joined us in Boise uh, just earlier in the month of October. It was a phenomenal time together. Really enjoyed getting to meet and invest and be mutually encouraged by each and every one of you who made the pilgrimage out to Boise. Uh, keep up to date. We're going to let you know about our next training events that are taking place in the U.S. and in Europe. Uh, in the coming months and years to come. Okay, I'm going to get out of your way. And here is me and Nick and Tim talking about preaching that creates gospel culture. Here's what you can look forward to uh, for these next few moments together. I'm going to give a bit of a of a bit of a monologue. I'm going to be talking through um, four points really. And then our co-hosts, Tim Chaddick and Nick Cady, are going to come and we're going to talk through those points from their perspective and their experience, um, each of whom who have pastored in different contexts, uh, both in Europe and in the U.S. And after that, it will be a up-for-grabs, free-for-all, Q&A conversation that I really, truly believe is going to be beneficial for every single person. So with that in mind, I would love to pray, and we can work through this. So Lord Jesus, I know that for the past two and a half days, um, we've been hearing a lot about gospel culture. And Lord, I hope that every single one of us has also experienced gospel culture over these past two and a half days. 
I also want to extend that prayer, and I hope that many of us come from cultures, sorry, come from churches that embody this as well. If that's the case or if it's not the case, by attending this workshop, everyone here wants to amplify that a little bit more. And Spirit, would you bless them for that good desire? And Spirit, would you empower myself and Nick and Tim to ask the right questions and share the right experiences that can just turn up the temperature, that can turn up the intensity of gospel culture in these various churches and communities that are represented. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. So we can go to the next slide, which will kind of show you what we have in store. (laughs) I'm going to talk about what gospel culture is. Actually, let me caveat that. I'm just going to ask you, I'm going to crowdsource a definition of gospel culture. We've heard it defined and explained by many of the preachers that we've sat under this, uh, this conference. And so I want to hear what's kind of sticking with you. We're going to define gospel culture. We're going to talk about the limitations of the pulpit. And then mostly, we're going to speak about the opportunities of the pulpit. How can we steward the times that we have together? When we get to open God's word and preach and teach and proclaim God's truths, how can we steward that time best to enculturate this gospel culture? And then what y'all came for, the nitty gritty, talking about how to do it. And I have three ways, four ways that I have been trying and uh, you'll hear from myself and then also some contributions from Nick and Tim on that. So firstly, what is gospel culture? And actually, I'm just gonna let that hang. What is gospel culture, ladies and gentlemen? You read the brochure, it said interactive workshop, so. (laughs) The way we do things around here, centered in the gospel. Do you work with Nick Cady or something? (laughs) Preaching, Preaching the truth in love. I'd say it's a great start. And then what happens because of that? Yeah, walking it out. Having a a truth-loving community that is simultaneously loving to each other. Any other sentences or thoughts? Yes, hi, Jared. Wow. So the life and power of Jesus on display through our people and every gathering, through our interactions with each other. Love it. Uh, Yeah, Mark? Yeah, excellent highlighting that there are two components in play. Gospel doctrine, what's taught, what's preached, what's communicated, and then there's the way that people act and react and interact with each other. And we would hope, wouldn't we hope, that if the doctrine is right, the culture will follow. But we heard last night, that is not always the case. So I want to talk about what we as preachers or Bible study leaders or women's ministry directors or whatever context or capacity you handle God's word and teach it to others, um, what can we do to shape that culture? And in kind of a bit of a pessimistic and dismal, I'm going to start off by saying you can't do everything. So we'll talk about how the limitations that exist. I want to acknowledge briefly the limitations the pulpit has when it comes to shaping gospel culture in a church community. I mean, two, two quick stories. You know, I had a, an Uber driver two days ago. His name was Alonzo. He was um, uh, interested to find out that I was a, a pastor and that I was here in town for a pastor's conference. He spoke to me about growing up in North Carolina. He talked about how his mom was really into that Christianity stuff and how she drug him to church throughout his childhood experience. And what he said was that he loved all that the preacher said about Jesus and loving one another and forgiveness. He says, I'm, I'm all up for that. And he says, but the way people treated each other just makes me never want to go back. Also, here's a story even from my own life, from my own, from my own church in, in the past. Um, there's a family that's scheduled an appointment to tell me that they were leaving. 
And on the one hand, I appreciate that they didn't just ghost and just not, not show up. Uh, they said that they were leaving. And they said that it was from kind of a lack of connection with, with other congregants, uh, with the lack of like deep and rich fellowship. And what they said, though, after they hugged me and my wife, they said, we wish we could just take you two with us and start all over somewhere else. They said, the preaching, we're going to miss the preaching so much. We wish we could take you and start over somewhere else. I don't say that to brag and be like, I'm a pretty good preacher. I, I say that kind of to my detriment and, and to, to the shame. They're acknowledging there was the good stuff up front, but at least in their experience, it was not met with uh, the relationships. So here's the thing. I'm like the preaching guy. I love preaching. But let me just say, preaching is not enough uh, to do this. Because you can get great preaching on live streams. Many of, uh, many of you have been good preachers on live streams uh, over these past couple of years. Uh, there are great podcasts. You could hear any celebrity. Um, but there is something that's uniquely valuable about the gathering together. And again, I'm speaking to the choir right now. I think, we, I think we know this. Here's a quote from Francis Schaeffer. He says, One cannot explain the explosive dynamite, the dunamis of the early church, apart from the fact that they practiced two things simultaneously, orthodoxy of doctrine and orthodoxy of community. In the midst of the visible church, a community which the world would see. By the grace of God, therefore, the church must be known simultaneously for its purity of doctrine and the reality of its community. Listen up. Our churches have so often been only preaching points with very little emphasis on community. But the exhibition of the love of God in practice is beautiful, and it must be there. He says, our churches have often been preaching points with the absence of community. Now, my friends, as far as I know, Francis Schaeffer never even heard of a Calvary Chapel. <laughs> but I think that that might be even a uniquely Calvary indictment. I believe that somebody um, from the session this morning in the panel afterwards uh, was saying, you know, we got the doctrine, we got the, cult, we got the doctrine down, we got that good. It's everything else that we need to learn from. Now, again, that's a broad brush, but hope, let's be open to hearing this. Our speaker from the other day, Ray Ortland says, the beauty of human relationships, it's not an optional add-on to an otherwise complete and biblical church. Gospel culture is as essential to our witness as gospel doctrine. So again, he doesn't say that you're, you're fine without gospel culture, but if you really want to up your game, you'll add gospel culture. As long as the doctrine's right, then culture is an add-on. He says, nope, this is part, it's irreducibly complex. Have you heard that phrase, building a better mousetrap? Uh, the reason why is that the mousetrap is designed in such a way <clears throat> that every piece of the mousetrap is necessary for it to function properly. If you remove the spring, if you take away the wood, if you, if you have the, the, the snapper thing, whatever, the, the part that snaps, if you remove any of that, it's not that you have a less efficient mousetrap. You don't have a mousetrap any longer. Gospel doctrine must be accompanied by gospel culture. All right. So it's not only about preaching. Got it? But we, let's appreciate together the possibility of the preaching ministry of the church in shaping and cultivating gospel culture. We have a great opportunity. Let me tell you a story from Ireland. This is from years ago. Jacqueline O'Brien, and I have her permission to tell this story, uh, endured a, a long experience of depressive episodes, and even suicidal ideation. And she was a, a faithful attendee at, at our church and really going through it. And in my contact with her, and particularly my wife's contact with Jacqueline, she had a conversation with my wife. And, and amongst other things, she says, uh, Rachel, could you do me a favor? Could you ask Mike in his next sermon would he just tell the congregation that Jesus loves us? She's like, I know that he loves me. I, I, I read it in the Bible. I believe it with all my heart. And then, you know, she believed it then, and she believes it now. Jesus loves me. But she says, there's these times. It happens once every couple months when Mike kind of leans over the pulpit and, and tells us that Jesus loves us. She says, that causes my heart to sing. I have hope. 
in those? And could you ask him if you wouldn't mind doing that a little bit more? And, and hearing that, you know, was, was, was a challenge. Because on the one hand, it's like, well, too bad that she didn't feel comfortable enough to talk to me, but that's just, that's just how it is. But then also the fact that that foundational and that core, that basic like nursery rhyme truth was an occasional add-on to my preaching rhythms and rotas. And that she actually noticed it and she would hope for it. And so you better believe it. I've been talking to the church, the redeemed people of God, that Jesus loves them. Here's how um, Deepak Riju says. He says, as the pastor, and you could substitute ministry leader, you could substitute uh, whatever capacity you are handling God's word. As the pastor, you're the primary shaper of the church's culture. Because you preach most frequently, your beliefs and your values are far more influential in the steering of the culture of the church. What matters to you usually defines what matters to the church. He says that you have that influence, and that influence is a grave privilege. What's important to you is going to make it across to the people who have to endure your sermons over and over and over again. What you emphasize will be what is picked up by those who listen week in and week out. Tony Carter says that the culture of any church is shaped by the preponderance of messages emanating from its preachers. The culture of any church is shaped by the preponderance of messages. Guys, I looked up the word preponderance. Guess what preponderance means? It means the majority, not just an occasional message. It doesn't cut it to say Jesus loves you in January, March, September, and on Christmas. That doesn't cut it. It's the preponderance of messages. It's the steady stream that comes in and out. That is what's going to actually shape a culture. So people remember not what you mentioned once. People remember what you emphasize over and over and over again. And so I would suggest this wonderful truth of the love of Christ towards needy sinners is something not just mentioning from time to time, but always. So let's get practical how to prepare, how to preach in such a way that gospel culture takes root and bears fruit in our churches, okay? Number one, stay true to the text. We are not advocating a brand new way to teach the Bible. We are not saying, hey, listen, hey, Calvary Chapel folk, we've been chapter by chapter, verse by verse, but now we discovered this thing called gospel culture, and now we're just changing everything. My friends, same old, same old. We teach the context, not just the verse, the chapter, the paragraph, the book, but we teach the whole Bible according to its context with its emphasis. And I would say, I spoke about this just a, a moment ago uh, in the other room, but the, the next point is that we stay true to the text and we stay true to the gospel. I mentioned that we talk about the context of each verse with its paragraph, with its section, with its genre. So we wanna teach every passage as according to its context, but here's what we need to remember. Every single verse is in the context of the whole Bible, which is the story of God loving people and out of his love creates us. In our rebellion, we turn away from him, but then he begins this mission of pursuit through covenant that culminates in the cross of Christ and his resurrection, and, and by faith we're joined into that. That's the context of every passage. And what we teach, we find it along that stream and that part. So we're true to the text by being true to the context, which is the gospel, the big, the most important thing. I'm advocating for Christ-centered preaching. And motoring on, be true to the text, be true to the gospel, be true to your life. <clears throat> You have chances every time you stand before a podium or sit down with a Bible opened, and as you give illustrations and examples, you might talk about Napoleon, you might talk about science facts, and those are valuable and those are good. Often, you're going to tell stories from your life. I think that's a, that's a good thing, that's a valuable thing. You have the chance 
to acknowledge that you are a work in progress. You're able to say, my friends, God has graciously been involved in my life. He's working in my life in this area. Brothers and sisters, I haven't arrived yet, but God's graciously helping me in this. Haddon Robbins says this, my stories must illustrate. I must avoid trying to make myself look too good or too wise. A rule to follow. An illustration should illustrate the truth, not elevate the speaker. So we tell stories from our lives, but we don't do in such a way, as Brenda Leavenworth just said, that make us the hero of the story. We don't only want to tell stories from, I used to be a fool, and now I'm wise. I used to be a dummy, and now I'm smart. I used to be ungodly, and now here you have the real deal right in front of us. We're able to tell stories that give permission for the congregation to say, I'm similar to that. Okay, did, did Pastor so-and-so just speak about how God is graciously at work in his life and he hasn't arrived yet? That means there's room for me. That means that people like me who don't have it together have a place here. I think that that's valuable. This is something that more than one visitors to my own church, Calvary Cork, or not visitors, but people who like kind of just on-ramps into the life of the church. I've heard this multiple times. You know, whether it's you preaching, Mike, whether it's the young adults college group, whether it's women's ministry or men's ministry, it is so refreshing how you're almost guaranteed to hear a story of failure and personal neediness, <laughs> that you're not gonna get through any message from any person in any context without being reminded we're all works in progress and nobody has arrived. Okay, here's a context, sorry, here's a caution. I think there's a fine line between what I just said, okay? Don't be the hero of every sermon. Be open about your failings. Be, show that you're a work in progress. Which um, Amy or Ewing said, uh, she calls that um, uh, a misery memoir. Where all you're doing is just talking about you and your life and how everything is hard and how you're a victim or you're a fool. Um, you don't want to only ever do that. Also, you talk about how God is graciously at work in your life. And he is helping you. And this gospel really works. And the spirit really is in me. And I used to do this, but now by God's grace, I'm able to have a bit of victory in this. So there's, there's kind of a balance. And I look forward to speaking to Tim and to Nick about how, with that balance. Let me just give you, before I move on, one final example of what not to do. So this is from a Haddon Robinson book. He talks about a pastor who's preaching about lust. Why do you groan already? I haven't even gotten to the story. The pastor, he wants to be earnest. He wants to cultivate gospel humility. He wants to connect with the congregation. The pastor says, hey, I, I want you to know I'm still a work in progress in this. I, I'm preaching to you about lust, but I want you to know, guys, I struggle about lust. And if I want to be really honest, I've actually even lusted after some of you. Okay, moving on. Next verse. <laughs> so, I think it's possible to be a little bit too true to your life and very unwise. Where all of a sudden, you've made every single person uncomfortable. You've caused every single person to imagine, at, like at the Last Supper, is it I? <laughs> so, we're true to the text. We're true to the gospel. We're true to our life with wise disclosures of God's evident work in our lives, taking us from foolishness towards wisdom. And then finally, we highlight the truth about our church. Uh, we, we speak about the culture that we exist and the evidence of God's grace that's within the life of our community. Uh, we don't only need to look to stories about Martin Luther to illustrate bravery. Uh, we don't have to go only to the Cappadocian fathers when we're looking to wisdom. We can actually look in our own communities. I, I have kind of a checklist of, of, of points I like to hit 
every sermon if possible, although I don't do the best at this one, but I try to example, sorry, I try to show examples from women's ministry or what's happening with the teens in our church or our addiction recovery group. And I try to, I don't want to be the hero, but boy, do I want to highlight George O'Mahony and the way that he is serving people who are just getting off of drink and drugs and, and this. And so I look for good examples from within the community. I think there's a difference between being like a hype, overly hyping, and then also saying, we're in this together and we see God at work within our own congregation. Uh, celebrate others. And I try specifically to highlight ministries that I'm not involved in. I don't want anyone to think that like I have the Midas touch, you know, and like anything I'm in turns to gold. I specifically try to, to draw attention to and praise that which I am not involved in. I think this culture of honor, I think this culture of recognizing God's work and highlighting it helps build gospel culture. So we're true to the text. We actually teach the Bible. We are true to the gospel. We see that every passage, every theme, every genre is part of this big story that we call the gospel. We're true to our life. We're being wise. We're not being foolish. We're disclosing that God is still at work in us. And then we're also highlighting the good that we see in others in our community. I think these are things that can kind of contribute towards the gospel culture that we're looking for. And I'm going to invite Nick and Tim to come on up and maybe just hit these points once again. Help yourself to a microphone. I might stand to the side. Sit. Are we? Well, what's the culture? What are the, how, how hey, listen, are the way things the done around here? I'm going to sit next to you. Yeah. Hey guys. Hi Mike. Hey Mike. What do you think? What do you think the limits to the pulpit are? I think the limit to the pulpit, as you, as you well said, I think that you don't want to assume that the pulpit is everything, right? There's so much more to a church that goes on rather than, um, than just a pulpit that, that accomplishes anything. I remember uh, years ago, I was training a guy in my church in Hungary, and uh, I, had, I had gone away for a few weeks. He had taken the church for like three weeks, and he came, there, there was an issue that happened between two people, and... Um, and he told me, I'm shocked that that happened because I just preached on that. And I'm like, oh, apparently you haven't been doing this for very long because as it turns out, you don't just tell people things once and then they change their lives forever. Yeah. Right. And so um, I think the preponderance point was very good. I think that's important. Um, but as you said, there is there's a limit to what we can do. And yet. The reason we're here is because what we do here absolutely does matter and shapes the culture. Yeah, I went for several years, I think the first years of, um, we planted Reality Lay back in 2005. And I just, I don't think I would have said it this clearly, but I assumed because I preached it, done. I spoke it into existence. Yeah. So if it was a message or a passage on community and all the things that need to take place in community within our church plant, because I taught on community, I was like, it's done, filed away, great. And then like nothing was happening, like, oh, right. And so often, you know, we say, well, preach the word, yes, but we've also got to do the word. And so many of the instructions, even to leaders and pastors, are about how you organize the church. So it would be a shame to preach First Timothy and like go through, you know, just exegete it perfectly, line upon line, precept upon precept. But if you don't actually apply what Paul said, you won't see anything happen. Caring for the widows. Oh, yeah, I taught on that last year. Cool. So did we ever set up a ministry? Well, no, I, so I said it. So it's happening. Yeah. So, yeah, it's just, it's so obvious. And I don't think anyone would say it that Clearly, but for so many years, I functioned like that. I preached it. It was pretty good. So clearly, it's got to happen. Like, there's so much work to be done practically. So the, the pulpit is so powerful, but it's limited by design. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And, and then now, what, what's the opposite? So what can the pulpit do to shape that culture and to create a sense where, again, to quote Ray from earlier on, we can breathe the sigh of relief and be like, I feel safe here. And then also... I'm not embarrassed to bring a friend here 
because there is that culture of, of safety, of honesty. So what, what are the sort of things that either in Hungary or Colorado or London or LA or uh, Ventura, what are the ways that the pulpit can set that atmosphere or that tone? I mean, just a simple fact that you have all these people lined up looking at you and listening to you week in and week out. Yeah, it's got to count for something. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, they're sitting there and, and if they're taking notes, even more so, right? But I mean, the fact is that they're there with a receptive posture and they're giving you their time and attention and it will impact the culture. And so it's important to be careful how we use that time. Use it wisely, to use it well, to use it gently and to use it, yeah, in a way that really shapes people according to the gospel. Yeah, I think it's so powerful that, you know, Scripture obviously calls us to preach. You know, there's the the office of, of preaching. I was just thinking as we were sitting there of the doctrine and culture, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, and how powerful in Matthew 5, Jesus went up, you know, and then sat and he preached to, to the people. Like, part of God's design and how we're going to be shaped as a community is obviously through the communication of God's word. I think in a Calvary Chapel tradition, we all know that. I do think a lot of that, because of the faults of the culture and the, the sins that we often see, one of the responses I see, I saw it a lot in LA, they said, because the culture is lame or it doesn't always fit up, therefore preaching is no longer valid. And so I saw a trend of a lot of people who were like minimizing preaching, like well, preaching doesn't do anything. Sermons don't do anything. Classes don't do anything. It's like, hang on there. Yes, we need to correct the, the errors where we're not implementing gospel culture, but don't you dare minimize the imperative command of God to, to preach. Like, God speaks. Uh, things change. And even on a secular, I, I was looking around this room right now, we're talking about communication. I'm like, there's an alma mater over there. There's like the, whatever, the soaring eagle core values. I don't know how many, do kids actually read that stuff? I always wonder. I probably wouldn't if I was in high school. But think about, um, so I have teenage, teen, uh, two teenage kids. One of them's 18. And um, I make this joke because my oldest, she goes on the sofa in the morning and she's on her phone and she's looking at TikTok and I'm like, you doing your devotion? <laughs> you know, just a little dad jab, you know, kind of thing. But it's, it's all slogans, right? Like the power of communication is being wielded and harnessed by the world. Like they're not minimizing the impact of phrases and speaking and addresses and social media testimonies and f slogans, my body, my choice, uh, me too, whatever it might be. Like words are powerful. So the answer to bad gospel culture is not to get rid of gospel preaching. It gives a language. It, 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 you have the, sorry, I'm going, now I'm just preaching. <laughs> I'm trying to demonstrate please, please the power continue, of the, yeah. yes. No, but I mean, we're all on the same team there. But like, if the devil is trying to rob from you the importance of your preaching, please know, even right now, the Holy Spirit is like, preach the word. Be faithful. God works by the Holy Spirit. You preach to the ear, but the Holy Spirit preaches to the heart. Just be mindful of that. It's imperative that we, we preach. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. Yeah, I remember a few years ago having somebody tell me, you know, Jesus, he wasn't, he didn't like preach at people. He just kind of like shared stuff. And I, I was like... I don't know, like, have you ever, like, looked at the Bible? And I, like, pulled this thing up, and it was, like, 13 times where Jesus says, I came to preach. The reason I came was to preach, right? He goes on and on. And, I mean, that's that's very clear. I, I'm 100% with you. Uh, sometimes you hear people minimize the uh, importance of preaching, but it's incredibly powerful. And if you, yeah, think about famous speeches, things that have gone on through time. Uh, words matter and words shape people's not only the culture, they shape people's actions. So. Yeah, and sometimes these slogans can be a replacement for thoughtfulness. And or sometimes a slogan can open up a world into a, a different way of changing and thinking. So th yeah, there was, there was times when maybe in response against cheesy slogans that, that I just tried to make my sermons as bad as possible, though, you know, to, to avoid any kind of like clever headings any kind of alliteration, nothing rhymes, because, oh, that's, that's silly, that's shallow. And, and to quote uh, Ted Leavenworth, he's like, yeah, 
but people are shallow. And so, and so help them. And that's a bit dismissive, but. Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I'm not advocating slogans. I'm just yeah, yeah. highlighting the fact culture uses words. Yes. Like words are powerful. They can often be used badly and, you know, often cheesily. Is that a word? Yes. It is now. Yes. Yeah. It was I just, before. I spoke I it into existence. It was before. <laughs> All right. So w- p- preaching, we agree, is powerful. What should we preach? I would say the text and the gospel. Any context on that, on, on preaching the text and the gospel in such a way that creates gospel culture? I love that um, Mike mentioned both of those. Obviously, I think that's intuitive for most of us, but I was really glad you just said it so clearly. Like In emphasizing gospel culture, especially within Calvary Chapel, we're not saying that we're doing away with verse by verse, you know, et cetera. We're not saying that. They absolutely go together. And one of the reasons why we often don't see gospel culture take place is when we're not actually teaching the text. Because so often the text is getting into details of culture that need to be expounded on and explained, and we need to do our due diligence to unpack it and illustrate it and apply it. But we also need to make sure that we're always pointing back to the power which is the gospel, that we're also pointing back to the very source. So we absolutely have to be preaching the, the text. I think there are some, um, it's, it's an unfair criticism, but there, there was a number of years when like gospel center was like becoming a thing, you know, like especially uh, probably around 2006, 2007, I remember like, yeah, but are you gospel center? I'm like, I don't know. I kind of want to be. You can't say no to that. Like, what does that mean? But then there were people who were instantly suspicious of it among some of my friends. Like, oh, you're not teaching the word. And there was all these kind of unfair criticisms on both sides. But it's like, like Mike just said, you teach the text. Be faithful to the text. Unpack the text. Exposit the text. Exegete the text. And always make sure you're linking it to the gospel. Like, it's, it's so important and so clear. And it's through often expounding of those texts, especially in the New Testament, that you are helping gospel culture because so much of it is the implications and applications of the gospel. So it's absolutely important. Yeah, you know, Jesus said in John 5, right, talking to the Pharisees, he's talking about the scriptures, said you look to these scriptures and you think that in them you have life, but you fail to realize that these are them which speak of me, right? And so as we teach the text, which we must do, right, we're not here to give our ideas on things or whatever. We're here to teach the text and do so faithfully, but in order to teach the text accurately, we are pointing to Jesus. So again, it's not a gimmick. It's not like there's any other option, right? Like, I always think that's funny. Oh, are you Christ-centered or are you the other thing? Well, what is the other thing? I mean, it's actually you're no longer actually teaching the text correctly, or at least you haven't taught it fully if you haven't linked it to Jesus. And I think that the danger, obviously, this isn't a um, Christ-centered preaching workshop or anything, but it's just worth noting that it is possible to teach the text and not be true to the gospel. Like, there are many sermons... um, you know, I, some people call it evangelical Judaism. Uh, I believe that's, um, who is that? It's the gospel-centered hermeneutics. Um, what's his face? Saint, what's his face? Um, it's a book called Gospel-Centered Hermeneutics. But he talks about how, if let's say you're preaching Leviticus, and you are expounding it so well for your people, Hebrew context, and then you just get to the end of that particular passage. And the, on that day, you shall surely die. This is the word of God. Let's pray. You're like, you know, like that. He basically makes the point that is not a Christian sermon. It's only a Christian sermon when you're showing, not only explaining the text, but showing how that text is fulfilled in and made possible in our lives by Christ. So that is absolutely important. I know that you're the one asking the questions here, but could I ask a question of you too? Sure. Okay, so just the next step, oh, right, yeah, would be to say, <laughs> to say, okay, can you preach the gospel without teaching the text? Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think you can, and many people have. Um, for those of you that were in the previous, the previous session, we spoke about tacking the gospel on at the end of a message, even if it's somewhat disconnected from everything that was being said. Um, and, and, I, and I encourage that because it's better than the gospel not being preached. However, I think that there's responsible ways to do so. 
But your question is, how can we teach, no, preach no, the gospel? No, no, my question is, so he said it's possible yeah. to teach the text yes. and not preach the gospel. I'm asking, um, okay, other side, can you preach the gospel without accurately, or let's say giving, doing justice to the text? I mean, I think obviously the answer is yes. Uh, I'll give you an example. Like, let's say you're teaching Isaiah, and there's something in there about justice, and you jump right over the topic of justice. Yeah. As if you're, you know, just totally ignoring the point of the passage, and then just say, "And justice was done on the cross." Yeah. When you know Jesus took the judgment for our sins. So. Yeah. Again, better than nothing, but but God has more to say to us than just you should trust in Christ and be forgiven of your sins. He also cares, yeah, about justice being enacted in in this on this earth and in our lives and through our communities and whatever influence that we have. So. Uh, yeah, there's there's the phrase that Brian Chapel says. He calls it hopscotching to Golgotha, where you're like, justice in Isaiah, justice on the cross. Do you want to trust Jesus? And and again, those things are are true, but yet there's that slow and careful and measured way. And then also what uh, Professor Gary Bashir talks about is a truncated gospel, where all that God cares about is you being saved and going to heaven when you die. But also he does care about justice, life, healthy marriages, um, families that pass on good values. Like those are things that matter as well. Care for the poor, et cetera. I could shout all these other things. But just because they're not the gospel, they're also important and God does care how we live. The book of Proverbs is there, James is there because God cares how we live. He wants us to live wisely, not just be saved, go to heaven when you die. There's more. Thanks for that question. Can you ask another question? You may. Hey, listen, my monologue's over. Now it's a panel. I'm done. (laughs) Okay. I want you to ask. Oh, yeah. All right. Be true to your life. How can you go too much? How can you go not enough? What have you learned? What are some mistakes that you've made? That's what I want to hear. Those last two points, I think, are really important for uh, how many of you teach regularly, like in any context? Probably most of you, right? Those last, I think the first two were like, got it. Teach the text, teach the gospel. The, The last two, I think, might be a little more surprising. I don't know how that kind of like hit you when he said it, but um, as Mike was sharing, we talked about this yesterday when he was talking about the, the workshop, Paul the Apostle did this. Paul the Apostle talked about his life. But of course, he's a, a wonderful model because he avoided either making himself look like the hero or um, the misery memoir, of, although there, there's a few times where he's like, we despaired of life itself, yeah. but then he turns the corner, like, right, you're like, ooh, it's going to be a misery memoir, Second Corinthians 3, like, but that was so that we would trust in Christ, and you're like, oh, the lift, you know, but all that to say is that that concept is not just like Mike Negley or us saying, hey, you should talk about your life, because that engages people, we're not saying that, like, Paul talked about his life, he talked about the experience of suffering, and also, you know, like, Philippians, like, I've learned, guys, I've learned to be content Mm -hmm. in both lack and in plenty. Like, I love that Paul said that. He doesn't just say, hey, guys, be content. He's like, hey, let me tell you, yes, but I also want you to know I learned it. I had to learn from Christ. So I, to use examples, and I'm sure Nick has many, I think um, I err, and especially when I went to, um, when I moved to London, so I was in uh, Los Angeles for 10 years, and the temptation in LA is to talk about yourself as the hero. <laughs> that probably doesn't surprise any of you. You're like, oh my gosh, let me tell you the other day, like all these things I did, it was amazing. That's kind of the narrative in LA. You go to London, that doesn't work. In London, it's kind of like there's a phrase they use in Australia, you cut down the tall poppy. Like, no, you can't talk about yourself in such a way that makes yourself look good. That is not accepted in British culture. So there's a joke that says, if you just got a really nice new house and you just moved into it and somebody asks you how it went, the answer is always, it was a nightmare. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Like, oh, we just moved in this new house. And the answer, how did it go? Oh, it was, oh, it was a nightmare. <laughs> you have to say that. Because if you say, oh, it went great. We love the house. Everyone's like, oh, well, you think you're better than everyone else. So there's a sensitivity in Britain to that. I'm sure the, the same is in, true in the Republic of Ireland. All that to say is I knew that going in there, but I was almost too self-deprecating. I was almost too sarcastic about myself. Almost every illustration I used was always a negative illustration. It wasn't a misery memoir of like, my life is so bad, but it was always a negative about myself to the point where some people are like, hey, do you ever grow? <laughs> yeah. Because it'd just be nice to know. <laughs> so that's one example of like, Talk about your life, show how the gospel has been changing you, but 
I've, I've, I've erred on both sides. And so that word about being balanced is so, so yeah. important. Yeah, if we're constantly talking about what a fool we are, and then you're saying, but follow me as I follow Christ. Or how is that going to, yeah, be motivational, inspirational? And then again, like, there's probably a point when someone's like, why should I bring my friends to listen to this? If, if that guy can't get his own life together, then why do my friends need to be brought in on this? So it's, it's a, you got to thread that needle. Yeah, in 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, you know, he's saying, I want for all people to see your progress in the faith. And so that's important, right? Like, I mean, like, just reiterating what you're saying, but, you know, using the Bible and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So much better. (laughs) Not my story. So, um, yeah, I mean, he's saying, look, people need to see progress in the faith. It's a good thing for them to see. I think that's important, right? So saying, yeah, here, here's this thing I did. People definitely connect with you and your failure and brokenness. And, and then, but also helping them to see your progress, yeah. I think is super important. Yeah, and Nick, you, you tell a story every sermon. Yep. I, I try to start every single sermon with a story. Yep. And a personal story or just a story? I try to do a personal story, yeah, and um, and every now and then I, I'll use someone else's story, but uh, usually a personal story, and and usually it has something to do with uh, you. Know, you almost never want to make yourself. I mean, this is just a basic storytelling rule for anywhere in the country or anywhere in the world, um, is that you don't want to. You, here's the key to a story, right? You want to show incremental growth, right? So you don't want to say like, and then I figured it all out and now I'm, you know, this thing you want to say, and that moved me that much closer. Here's what I learned on that day. Mm. And mm. so, you know, it's a good way to, to get people's attention. Basically, I mean, even, even just us talking, it's the stories that are particularly interesting, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Any, uh, any horror stories about oversharing? You can say, it doesn't have to say it's me. You can say, I know someone who... <laughs> My wife and my children. Okay, we uh, often our stories, if, if you're married and you have children or whatever, you're often sharing personal stories, but there are so many times where I will share a story and my wife is like texting me like, why on earth did you share that? I, I shared a story once in a sermon in LA about how I made my wife cry at Disneyland. <laughs> it's not even funny. You guys are like, what a jerk. <laughs> take his license for preaching the gospel away. Some of my horror stories, I've never shared something like, you know, outright horrifying, but it's things where like the level of, level of vulnerability that I didn't like run by my wife or like by my children. As my children have gotten older, my oldest is 18, and oh my goodness, there was a season where I've, when your kids are like three, you tell all the stories you want. Like the other day they were there and they did this and, you know, but then all of a sudden they're like 15 and my daughter's like, why did you say that? Why did you say that? So I, I don't often share other people's stories, but when I share mine, I've realized that like in an effort to want to be vulnerable, like, I didn't really run it by my yeah. by my wife. She didn't really appreciate it. Yeah, or just yeah, like even even what I shared about uh, Jacqueline and her her time of depression. I I, I made sure I actually uh, texted her like three days ago and said, Hey, I'm planning on telling that story. Like, do I have your permission? And, and she said, yeah, absolutely. I would love if more preachers everywhere told people that Jesus loved them. Yes, please, please use my story. You could use my first and last name. Um, and I think that's a, a valuable practice. Oftentimes, the, the trouble that we get into is when we're just up there just, that reminds me of a story. And then, boom. And you, and, and Dangerous territory. And your spouse is just withering in the front row. Sorry, now your turn. No, no, I would just uh, join in with you. Again, this one actually isn't about me, um, but I, we had a guy that we worked with uh, in Hungary who is a very dynamic, young preacher. We had this thing which was for, uh, for younger people particularly. And yet this guy, you know, he essentially was like, it was like dumping his purse out on the table every Sunday to the point where actually people lost respect for him because he'd be like, and I'm struggling with porn and I'm still struggling with it. I mean, I'm shy of what that guy did in your story, but not that far shy, right? Like, it's like, whoa, you know, like, yes, we all struggle, but also, you know, you can actually lose uh, respect and authority if you do it wrong. And then the final thing was um, highlighting truth about your church. Because, again, this, this gospel culture concept that we're talking about, it's to make 
our church communities to be safe, healthy places that embody. Uh, Jared, do you remember your, uh, you gave a good example, or a, good, a good definition of this, like 40 minutes ago? Yeah, it was good, and I forgot it. <laughs> yeah, thank you very much. So we want that, and are there ways to highlight when that's already happening? What do you, what do you think about that? I think just to reiterate um, the point that Paul the Apostle did this as well, um, so as Mike was sharing that, I just kept thinking of, especially with Corinthians, and, but he obviously does not in all of his letters, but he's not only sharing the ups and downs of his own journey, he's also highlighting them for the church. Well, that's great stuff. But as I mentioned, that's all you get. The audio just cut out and the next 20 or 30 minutes of really meaningful and great practical questions from the audience and great answers from Tim and Nick. Well, that just is lost to time. You just had to be there. So what a great advertisement or invitation to prioritize the in-person training events that we do here at Expositors and also the CGN Calvary Chapel International Conference, which is coming up next June. Uh, Hope to see you at one or more of those events. All right. Being there in person is obviously better, but podcasts are pretty great too. And I do want to let you know that next Tuesday, episode 246, there's actually a really cool and a really special episode that's coming your way. So make sure that you're subscribed so that it automatically comes to it. And here's a bit of what it is. I've done one of these before and they're a lot of work on the back end, but they're really enjoyable to listen to. This is kind of like a compilation album or a mixtape. I have gone back to some of the previous guests that have been on this show and asked them to just send in a recording of them just shouting out and honoring and speaking about the mentor or the mentors that have played a significant role in their formation and also in their preaching. So next Tuesday, you're gonna hear from previous guests like Ronnie Martin, John Hindley, Alan Stoddard, Chad Brooks, John Tyson. They've all contributed to next week's episode. And if it doesn't encourage you to either find a mentor or be a mentor, I don't know what will. So. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or whatever to make sure that you benefit from next Tuesday's episode. All right. I will see you then. All the best. I hope that this episode and all that we do at Expositors Collective helps you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word.